and welcome to Harris in Conversation, our Harris Federation teaching and learning podcast brought to you remotely from London. Our series aims to bring important and relevant teaching and learning conversations to you, whether you are a frontline teacher, a school leader or simply an educational enthusiast. My name is Emily Barber and today I am joined by the incredible Beatrice Garland. It was an absolute privilege talking to Beatrice and I invite you all to listen with eagerness as we deconstruct and discuss some of her intentions and influences behind the poem Kamikaze. Now this was recorded over Zoom so you'll notice a slight difference in the quality of the recording from now. But sit back, relax and fall in love with this brilliant poem once again. So tell us about who you are, where you're from, what you do. Well, I was born a long time ago. My dad was a researcher, actually in immunology, and he went on to do that in, the, in a big way in other university towns. Wow. Uh, and I, my mother looked after four children, and I was the oldest. I went to university many years later, and I read English. And so I would say the thing that characterises me more than anything as far as academic work goes is that I've always read. I read and read and read. Now, me as an adult, I've got two sons. I'm married. I've got two sons and five grandchildren. And um, I haven't always written, partly because of work. So I've worked in the NHS and I trained as a psychologist, which is, it fits with reading, with reading novels, because it's all about behaviour and people and what goes on inside them. But psychology in particular is about what goes on inside people. So the poem I wrote, Kamikaze, is actually about a young woman imagining what her father felt as he flew out to do his devastating, murderous act on the ships in the Pacific and imagining what he was imagining as he remembered his own father and the life that his own father had led as a fisherman. I specialised uh, under my professional name in the area of trauma, you know, when terrible things happen to people. So for me to write about trauma, which is what kamikaze is about in a way, was what underlies it, was absolutely natural. I was working in the NHS when 9-11 happened and I became very interested in what is it that will make a young man or a young woman for that matter sacrifice their own life in the service of a cause that they believe to be just or that somebody else believes to be just. In the case of the kamikaze pilots, it was the emperor that said, you go and do this. And they weren't given much choice. They were bundled onto the planes and told to get on with it if they didn't want to go. So that event really got to me yeah. because, you know, what makes them do it? So I began to research it. Mm. And I discovered that the people who've been willing to sacrifice themselves in the serviceable cause from for hundreds of years. So I 
became very interested in the phenomenon. And I also wanted to know what about those who changed their minds? Definitely a really poignant moment in history. I remember it um, quite well, but also definitely something to really think on, like you're saying, in process. And do you think that 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 has been reflected in some more of your writings? So, for example, in The Drum, you wrote Aftermath 9-11. Something that definitely stayed with you and you wanted to cover more of. Yes, yes. Well, the Aftermath poem is about, it's it's more hopeful, actually. Because yeah. it's about regeneration mm. and the, the people who come after you, the children who come after you, their children who come after them, and about mm. things regrowing. So it's it's a hopeful poem. I won't say it's optimistic, but it's hopeful. So yes. in your opinion, why do you think it's important to study poetry in school? I think the most important thing is that you read. You read as much as you can as widely as you can. But the reason I say that is because language, spoken language, written language, is what distinguishes human beings from all other forms of life. Language is what makes us human. And poetry is heightened language. It wants to create in the mind of the reader the picture that first stirred the poet, or that was in the poet's mind. I want to convey that to you so that you see it the way I saw it. Mm. I also love that you were touching upon the fact that it just expresses that individual sense of how they see, grasp and feel the world around them. Um, And And it conveys it to someone else. Yes, and I think that you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. It's opening up the reader's eyes to a perhaps a different way or a similar way of seeing that particular aspect of the world. And I love that. Thank you. So let's move on and talk a little bit about kamikaze. Well, it's, it is personal in a way because it is a woman speaking in the poem and she is talking to her children about her father who had um, been given the task of going and not just bombing the American ships in the Pacific, but destroying himself in the process. Because in order to blow the ship up, you had to fly the plane into the ship and blow the whole lot up. And she is imagining, because she can no longer speak to her father, what he felt as he flew out there with enough fuel for a one-way journey into history. In other words, there was no way back. Once when I read that poem at a reading, uh, a Japanese poet told me that some of the pilots who flew out to the Pacific to bomb enemy ships were so unwilling to lose their lives in the process that they ditched their planes in the sea, close to the ships, close to the enemy ships. And of course they were picked up. They weren't just allowed to sink, they were picked up and made prisoners. Well, they spent the rest of the war in prison, of course, and I'm sure conditions weren't great, but they were alive. And this is the essence of what this poem is about. It's about life and how you decide that life is worth more than what your emperor tells you to do or killing loads of other people. Life is what is important and valuable and beautiful. You mentioned before the some of the images in the poem. Well, this was 
me imagining what the woman imagined her father was seeing as he flew out to do this terrible mission. Mm -hmm. And it was the beauty of life, the incredible scenes that he saw as he flew over them, the fish turning around in the sea underwater. I don't know if you've seen The Blue Planet, the David Attenborough film. It's where I got that image from, you know, these fish revolving in the sea. They're like a huge flag waved first one way, then another. So if you're a poet, you grab things from wherever you find them and you try to turn them into words. What happens is that the pilot is faced with a choice, a really difficult choice. Do I complete my mission and die? Or do I decide, no, actually, life is more important. So he turns round and he flies back. The same Japanese colleague in the clinic where I worked told me that those who came back, and her father was one of them, uh, were shunned by society. They were blanked. The children gradually stopped speaking to him too because the whole of the neighbourhood has stopped speaking. And he is isolated. And she regrets this by the time we reach the poem. But he has made a choice for life, but in doing so, he has lost his emotional life. He made this decision and it has cost him a very, very great deal. I think every time I read it personally out loud, it's that final line. I always just get a lump in my throat when I read that final line because you just don't expect that to be the outcome from such a, a, a very shocking and tragic situation. Uh, well, you think it's going to end happily as he turns around and flies back. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it doesn't. Yeah. And, uh, you know... I can't read it without getting choked up in that last line. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, it, it, it's not just about that father and that daughter. It's about fathers and daughters or mothers and daughters or mothers and sons that you, if you feel in later life you, you didn't understand something or didn't treat them well, it makes you feel, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. I wish I hadn't said that or done that. I wish I'd understood what they were feeling at the time. And yeah. that's what the daughter says to her children. They didn't realise it was wrong mm. because th there is a, a, the Japanese, the kamikaze soldier's oath. And the kamikaze soldier's oath makes it absolutely plain that you've got to do what you're told. And if you don't, you are dishonoured and shunned. Now, in the old days, the samurai warriors uh, were expected to commit a kind of ritual suicide if they disobeyed orders called seppuku. They were to plunge a sword into, the, into their stomachs, it to the left side, draw it across to the right side, and then upwards. So they disemboweled themselves. Now, this went on into World War II now, this is the point of the samurai sword in the cockpit, because it's to remind him that samurai are warriors. It's very clear that it all boils down to you do what your commanding officer tells you to do. And if you don't, you're dishonoured. My point in the poem is don't always do what you're told. Don't think about it. Decide for yourself. Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this a good thing to do or is it destructive?
And that's why I think my kamikaze pilot made the right decision. He decided it was not a good thing. It was wrong. He mm. wanted to live. Life is beautiful. He didn't want to kill all those other young men like him on the boat. It's, it's that image of the samurai sword. I see what you're saying. It's that reminder, isn't it, that you yeah. know, you, you you're tied to us. We own you. And yes. it's, it's, I love that, yeah. that you were saying it's, it's then it's his choice. He can choose yes. to not, not own. The flask of water. It's about purity. Mm. You don't take alcohol. You don't take coffee. You don't take stimulants. You've just got your flask of water and your shaven head, which is also about purity, full of powerful incantations. The powerful incantations are the kamikaze soldier's oath, which says obey orders. And we know from history how much bad, how much wrong is done in the name of I was only obeying orders. So let's hone in a little bit more on this beautiful section talking about the, the fish um, and the specific types of fish and the power of that image to the pilot, but also for us as the readers. Well, she, the, the, the woman, imagines what is in his, her father's mind as he flies his plane, and she imagines that he's thinking of his father, who was a fisherman not a pilot, just a fisherman. And he brings in all these fish. Now, one of these hidden or not so hidden references, but it is a clear reference in my mind anyway, there's the, the salt sutton awash with cloud marked mackerel. Well, that's the sea and the sky because this poem is about three of the four elements, earth, air, and water. But the fourth element, fire, is what is missing because it's avoided. So we've got earth, air and water, black crabs, feathery prawns. Now the loose silver of white bait is a very oblique reference to the silver that Jesus accepted for the betrayal of Christ. Now, I want to say that I did not intend that when I wrote it. Some of what you write comes out of your own unconscious. And that's what came out of my unconscious, because that's part of my childhood, that you don't betray people you love and admire. And if you get paid for doing it, this is really awful behaviour. What we get a hint of is that this pilot is beginning to feel betrayed and Along the same lines, when I put in the little boats strung out like bunting and the whole flag. Now, all these two are celebratory images, but what is there to celebrate? He's flying to his death and the death of all these others. So there's a kind of irony in it, sort of contradiction, which makes you think, why are they waving flags when this is what's happening? And of course, they're not waving flags. It's that... He sees these fish swirling in the water. He thinks it's like a flag and he thinks, why am I celebrating? Um, and the loose silver of white bait, well, as I say, it's, a, it's an oblique reference to the betrayal of Christ by Judas, who got paid for it. Mm. On the GCSE specification, yeah. we are asked to compare poems. In your viewpoint, what is the importance and significance of poetry comparison? And do you ever compare your poems to any others? There are a lot of poems that 
one can compare. For instance, I think in the power and conflict section of the AQA syllabus book, there's a poem by Jane Weir about poppies. But I like very much Seamus Heaney's Storm on the Island. Yes. And if I were going to look at the point of view in Kamikaze and the point of view in other poems, I'd certainly use Bayonet Charge. And I'd certainly use Simon Armitage's Remains, which is not about war, but it's, I mean, it's not about fighting another country, but it's about the haves and the have-nots. If I compare what I've written to other poets, the poet I would most like to be like in that respect is Wilfred Owen, World War I poet who died young, but brilliant and very poignant and very truthful about war and the effect on him and his comrades. It's very important because I think when you're a beginner poet, you ladle on the adjectives, don't do it. Write what you want to write, then go through, cut out every single adjective and see the bones of what you've got left. It's, uh, you never stop learning to write. You never stop realizing that you could take that word out and it would actually make it stronger. And the little subtle differences, like the difference between using a definite article or an indefinite article, a V or an A, it's absolutely counts, it's crucial. So keep at it. It's ideas, it's expression, it's um, the different concepts that you're working on. It's not thinking about key adjectives or similes first. They come with it. Expression, Absolutely. And that is a a key message that we want to get across to students and teachers out there. We're encouraging our students to write their own forms of poetry and their own expression. Um, Are there any tips or, or any sort of suggestions that you can give them if wanting to write for themselves. I know that it took you, wasn't it seven years to write Kamikaze? Didn't it just happen overnight or, or five, years. five years? Five years. Five yes. years. Well, because 9-11 happened in 2001. This wasn't published till 2006. And I find that with a, with a lot of poems, that you write something and then put it in a drawer and don't look at it for a long time and then come back to it and then you can read it as though someone else had written it. That's a real help. You think, oh, this person's written this poem, now how can I edit it or improve it? In terms of the process, so for Kamikaze, you wanted to express yourself on what was happening at the time in 9-11. For our students writing their own poetry, if they've got a passion for something that they want to express, where do they begin? Where you begin is by not immediately putting it down on paper or telling somebody else about it. Keep it in your head. Let it grow. Let it grow shoots. Let it grow leaves. Turn it over and over in your mind. And when you first start to put it down on paper, it might only be a couple of words, but somehow, I, I don't quite know how to describe it, but it's like when you strike something and there's a spark, sometimes you get two words that come together and you think, yes. Now put down those two words because they've got resonance, they've got importance. But the real thing I want to say is that if you want to write, if you're a young person and you want to write, Give yourself half the day more saying goodbye to social media. 
Don't even think about it. Get someone to lock your phone away and be alone with your thoughts and your ideas because it is the only way you will grow something out of your own imagination. And that's what poems are. They are experience worked on by imagination. Don't rhyme, don't do anything except just put down these words that feel important to you, feel right to you. But if you spend your time obsessed with what X or Y is saying, on social media, or you're following endless people on Twitter, you will never do it. It will never happen. And I must say, I think that the social media and Twitter in particular has done more damage to young people's minds than anything else in my lifetime. And uh, the best thing Twitter has done is to ban Donald Trump. <laughs> It's killed that form of communication that we strive now to patch up again. Yes, it kills thought, but more than anything else, it kills imagination. Mm. And, and if you're going to write, you have to have access to your own imagination. And everybody's got it. Everybody's got that capacity. Use it. It's like gold. Mm. That, that's, what you, that's what you need more than anything else to, to write. And you're so right, it's within all of us. It's just finding it within ourselves, yeah. Um, so this brings us on to the final question of the session. Yes. What is next for you on your writer's journey? Are you working on anything at the minute? Yes. I'm not going to say too much about it because if you talk about something too much, you don't do it. Yes. But it is about my father and his very early work during World War II on immunology. It contains a story, and the story was of being in the garden at Oxford with my two parents in 1940 and constantly expecting air raids and planes coming over with bombs. And over the rooftops flew, just above the chimneys, an enormous plane. The noise, I can't describe it, it simply obliterated everything we were all looking up like this, and it crashed, this plane, just over the end of our garden. And my father jumped over the wall at the bottom of the garden, along with various other neighbours, because we realised this was not an enemy plane, it was one of ours. And he was trying to make it back to the airfield, and he hadn't made it. Now, they pulled the pilot free of the wreckage, and they took him to the Radcliffe Infirmary, the hospital, where he, as near as anything, died because 60% of his body was burned away by the fire that this plane blew up in, in the explosion. And my father was asked to see what could be done to save him. And what he wanted to do was to transplant skin from someone else onto this burned pilot until his own skin could regrow. He found rapidly it's impossible. You cannot graft skin from one person to another. In fact, in those days, you couldn't do any kind of transplantation of organs. And he spent then the rest of his working life solving this problem. How do you get the host the body that you're transplanting into, to accept the foreign body, the kidney, the skin, the heart, and not reject it. 
that was his life's work. It's preoccupying me because I'm trying to write it in poems. It's really, really difficult. And you'd think in lockdown, I had all the opportunity in the world, but it's so difficult Mm. to write. This will be the last long thing I write. I'm finishing with something that was crucial in my life. And incidentally, the fire, the explosion of the plane in a column of fire, that's the element that is missing in kamikaze. Earth, air, water, but no fire. So now I'm writing about the fire. Mm. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too, Emily. Such a humbling experience to get to talk to the brilliant Beatrice Garland. And what wonderful moments when she opened up about her life, her influences and other literary works. This was Harris in Conversation. My name is Emily Barber. Thank you so much for joining us and please do stay tuned for our next teaching and learning podcast out soon. Make sure you check out some of our other poetry offerings, including our Learning with Harris podcast found on Podbean and Spotify and our YouTube channel talking about every single poem in the Power and Conflict cluster. As always, you've been fantastic. Hope to speak with you soon.